so I'm getting very close to my destination here. Right, right in it, right in the very center of Times Square. Uh, it's just up here. Oh, saxophone man. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura. And today, we cross the Rubicon and go to what might be the least obscure, most touristy place in all of New York City, the Madame Tussaud Wax Museum in Times Square. This is not sponsored. Big Wax did not get to me. I am here because I want to tell you the incredible story of the very real Madame Tussaud, even if it costs me. Forty-four dollars. Forty-eight dollars. Damn. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself. You might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites, along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. There's Marilyn Monroe. Uh, There's Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, Nicolas Cage. A Steven Spielberg. I don't know about you, but I always associated Madame Tussauds wax museums with ground zero for the most touristy locations in the world. And that is true. That is correct. But what surprised me was that Madame Tussaud isn't a brand name, or at least it didn't start out as one. So the reason, ah, yes, here's what I came for. Here's where I wanted to find. This is the wax model of the woman herself. Madame Tussaud. She's a real person. In the Madame Tussaud Wax Museum in New York, I was staring into the wizened face of a small old woman. She's wearing glasses and a bonnet. She looks a little bit like old Mother Hubbard. And in this building of glitzy wax celebrities, you could easily walk right by her. But really, in a way, it's her building. This model I'm looking at is of the real Madame Tussaud. It's a self-portrait. And I'm here looking at it 
because I'm slightly obsessed with her and the world that she lived in. Madame Tussaud lived at a moment when history hinged. During the reign of terror and the French Revolution, the story of Madame Tussaud is the story of that revolution. And the wax heads in this museum have a grislier origin story than you might imagine. So let's leave Times Square behind for a second and go back to the story of the real Madame Tussaud. Having left the Halloween area, I'm looking at a perfect replica of Anderson Cooper, Miley Cyrus. And uh, here's Taylor Swift. Are they all this tall? Jesus. I guess Anderson Cooper's only a little taller than me. Marie Groschultz was but six years old when she accompanied her uncle to Paris. Yet, Madame Tussaud declares that she has a perfect recollection of her arrival in that city. That quote is from Madame Tussaud's autobiography. It was dictated to a friend when she was in her late 70s. So it's written in the third person, and it's a wild book, part memoir, part history lesson, part gossip about all of the famous people that Madame Tussaud encountered. Her autobiography is also a bit of an unreliable narrator. Some historians say that it's been exaggerated and was written to help sell tickets to her museum. It's also been very difficult to disprove. So that line between the real and the exquisite fake is difficult to determine. She is Madame Tussaud, after all. Of course, she wasn't always Madame Tussaud. She was born Anna Maria Groschultz in 1761 in France. Everyone back then called her Marie. When Marie was just a young girl, around six, she and her mother moved to Paris to live with her mother's boyfriend, a man named Philippe Cursus, who she called her uncle and who eventually legally adopted her. That man, Philippe Cursus, he was a doctor, but he had another talent as well. He made these elaborate, beautiful wax models of human anatomy. Before the days of refrigeration, these wax anatomical models were one way that doctors could learn about the human body. Philippe took this craft in wax far beyond medicine. When he moved to Paris, he created in wax a model of a woman named Jean Becou, the woman who would go on to become King Louis XV's most famous mistress. Philippe modeled her, full body, full scale, laying on a velvet couch in a sumptuous golden robe, her wax arm thrown up over her wax forehead. The model was even fitted with a mechanism that made her chest gently rise and fall as if it was breathing. Philippe makes many more models and sets up a brand new wax museum in Paris. It is the talk of the town. It helps that he's also friends with many famous people. His home is regularly visited by famous philosophers like Voltaire and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, as well as international diplomats like Benjamin Franklin. Marie, still just a little girl, watches them all have dinner and debate. Madame Tussaud still well recollects that when she was but eight or nine, Voltaire used to pat her on the cheek and tell her, what a pretty little dark-eyed girl she was. And in Marie, her adoptive uncle, Philippe, sees potential, maybe a possible protege. And he begins to teach her his trade, 
how to take a plaster cast, how to add color to a wax face. By the age of 17, she makes her first official models of Rousseau, of Benjamin Franklin, and of that famous philosopher Voltaire, just a couple of months before he dies. Marie is quickly learning how to make exquisite wax models. In this world of celebrity and famous French royalty, Marie's star rises. According to her autobiography, she's in her early 20s when she's asked to come live at Versailles and teach Louis XVI's sister, Madame Elizabeth, how to make wax models. Whether she really lived there or for how long is uncertain, but she describes meeting and modeling the royal court, the king, and of course the biggest star of them all, Marie Antoinette. It was impossible to render justice to the exquisite delicacy and transparency of her skin. Her eyes were blue and the expression peculiarly soft. Her hair was light and she always wore powder. Her feet were small and her hands remarkably beautiful. In a time before photographs, wax models were the closest you could get to the royalty. And the wax salon that Marie's uncle ran worked like a cross between TMZ and Twitter. On the one hand, the wax models satisfied the public's desire for gossip about the biggest celebrities of the day, the royalty, what they looked like, the super fabulous clothes they wore. On the other hand, the waxworks provided news, who was in power, who was out of favor, who had been sent to prison. While the royal state was busy censoring plays and newspapers, waxworks could portray people and events of the day as they actually were. And for those who couldn't read, they were a way to find out what was actually going on. And there is a lot going on. Because while the elite of Paris were having these salons and discussing philosophy, outside the drawing rooms, French society was boiling. There were food shortages. The king bought diamonds while his farmers starved. The public was crying out, screaming, that someone had to pay for all of this injustice. It's July 12th, 1789, and an angry mob shouting about the economy and food shortages bursts into Marie and her uncle's wax salon. They are demanding heads, wax heads. The heads of two political figures, to be precise, France's finance minister and a prominent nobleman. The mob spears these wax heads on pikes and parades them through the street. This mob was also eerily prophetic because just two days later, it's actual heads being paraded around town. The Bastille, this infamous political prison, is stormed. At first, the revolution was kind of great for the wax business. People want to see these thrilling events represented. And Marie and her uncle get to work. They make wax models of the heroes of the storming of the Bastille. They make wax heads of the recently executed royalists. They even make a miniature cardboard model of the Bastille itself. But as time goes on, increasingly the wax heads that Marie is being asked to model start to become the heads of people that she actually knew, people she had met in her uncle's salons, people she had known at Versailles, people that she had sat and had dinner with. 
On September 3rd, 1792, a bloody crowd shows up on Marie's doorstep. They're holding the head of Princess de Lamballe, who they have just hacked to pieces. They demanded that Marie make a model of her. So Marie made a model. The savage murderer stood over her while she, shrinking with horror, was compelled to take a cast from the features of the unfortunate princess. For Madame Tussaud to have the severed head of one so lovely between her trembling hands was hard, indeed, to bear. Later that year, she once again gets the chance to model the head of Marie Antoinette, who she had met and modeled at Versailles. Only this time, it's her severed head, fresh from the guillotine. Not long after this, Marie herself becomes a target of the revolution. Madame Tussaud, her mother, and aunt were carried off in the middle of the night by the gendarmes. In the same room where they were confined, she found about 20 females. They were compelled to have their hair cut every week in order that their heads might be a trim fit for the guillotine, for which they were bid to prepare themselves. For three months, Marie sat in a crowded prison with her head shaved, waiting to be executed. Ultimately, Marie was saved by a friend with connections to the revolutionary movement. The reign of terror was also finally starting to come to an end. But there was one more head for Marie to model, Robespierre, whose star had risen and fallen with deadly speed, who had overseen the execution of 17,000 enemies of the revolution, was himself executed. And afterwards, Marie modeled him. After the reign of terror subsides, Marie gets a second chance at life. She marries a man named Francois Tussaud, taking his name. They have children. She inherits her uncle's waxworks. And as soon as she is able to, she leaves for England. Once there, she puts on a traveling wax show, which includes, among other things, a wax model of the severed head of Robespierre and the lawyer who sentenced her to prison. The show is a massive hit. And finally, after many, many years of moving, always touring with the wax show, Marie finally establishes a permanent museum in London, where she sat outside taking tickets well into her 80s. And it is at this moment that she becomes fully and completely Madame Tussauds. Is this the end? Oh, no, attraction continues, okay. They really zig zig and zag you around this place. Today, there are 25 branches of Madame Tussauds wax museums all over the world. New York, Las Vegas, London, Berlin, Beijing, Singapore. And it's been bought and sold and conglomerated many, many times over. The museums themselves are a multi-billion dollar business, which explains the ticket price. In a lot of ways, the museum is still very much the same. It's still full of wax figures of royalty, of politicians, also singers, talk show hosts, athletes, movie stars, our own French aristocracy. And all eerily lifelike, that mix of the real and the unreal still compelling 250 years later. It's still a way for regular people to get close to the stars. In fact, that's Madame Tussauds' tagline. Get closer to the stars. All right. (laughs) About an hour later and $50 uh, short. 
that was the Madame Tussauds Museum in Times Square. You know what? I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it. I want to give a special nod to the books Madame Tussauds and the History of Waxworks by Pamela Pillbeam and Madame Tussauds, A Life in Wax by Kate Barrage. These were great books and really helpful in researching this episode. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. The production team includes... Doug Baldinger. Chris Naka. Camille Stanley. Willis Ryder-Arnold. Sarah Wyman. Manolo Morales. Baudelaire Seuss. Gianna Palmer. Tracy Samuelson. John Delore. Peter Clowney. Our technical director is... Casey Holford. And this episode was sound designed by... Chris Naka. And mixed by... Luce Fleming. If you want to learn more, be sure to visit atlasobscura.com. There is a link in the episode description. And our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will see you next time. Witness Docs from Stitcher. Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Decoder Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Decoder Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Decoder Ring, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by The New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one.